0: Matthew 1, 1-17 This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, and the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez, the father of Hezron. Hezron, the father of Ram. Ram, the father of Amminadab, Amminadab the father of Nashon. Nashon, the father of Solomon. Solomon uh, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And Jesse, the father of King David. Father, uh, David was the father of Solomon, whose mother, who, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Solomon, the father of Rehoboam. Rehoboam, the father of Abijah. Abijah, the father of Asa. Asa, the father of Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat, the father of Jer- Jeroham, Jeroham, the father of Uzziah, Uzziah, the father of Jotham, Jotham, the father of Azhar; Azah, the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah, the father of Manasseh, Manasseh, the father of Amon, Amon, the father of Josiah, and Josiah, the father of Jenoha Geno- and his brothers at the time of the exile of Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jacona was the father of Sheetil, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, Eliakim the father of Azor, Zadok the father of Achim, Achim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Elzar, Elzar the father of Matam, Matam the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph. The husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus, there are fourteen generations in all of Abraham to David, fourteen from David to the exile of Babylon, and fourteen from the exile to the Messiah.
1: And if, thank you more than usual for that. That was um, <laughs> so. A, a very helpful reading. Thank you very much indeed. We're going to uh, have a look at that this Advent, as we start off our Christmas season. But just before we do that, it's remarkable we can ask the ultimate author of those words for help, and so we're going to pray just as we begin. Let's pray. Father God, we just sung of the with of the joy which is available to each and every single one of us this Advent, and so. Uh, I pray, Father, that as we come to your words in the Bible, that we would say yes to the joy that you're offering us. Uh, Please make us open to the joy that you would love to give us as we fix our eyes and our thoughts on your Son and Messiah, Jesus Christ. And we pray these things in his name. Amen. Uh, I once decided to write a book. Anyone else um, decided to do that um, at any point in their lives? Yeah, excellent. Um, I've got a friend who believes that every single one of us has a book in us somewhere. If only we could find it. And uh, I I never actually got to to putting pen to paper. It was a very sort of theoretical thing. Um, But um, I did read on the internet a series of instructions for first-time authors. I thought it'd be quite useful. So, sort if of you, you want to prepare and, uh, and, and get some wisdom on these things. And um, uh, just one piece of advice stuck in my mind for first time authors, and that was try and leave out the bits that no one will read. I thought that was quite useful. That was, that was quite a useful sort of piece of advice. Um, try and leave out the bits that no one will read. And um, I say this with all due respect to Matthew. Um, but it seems to me that he hasn't read that advice i don't know if that if, if you get that impression it it, it seems to me that is i don't know if is the first thing he, he wrote but it it seems to me like many of us would think that he should have started at verse 18. Uh, that's the story of that's the story of christmas uh, matthew does have he's had this amazing story to tell about about the angels and about the birth of the birth of a baby how that baby grew up to do uh, incredible miraculous things to teach uh, some some of the some of the most penetrating teaching that the world has ever seen, and then how the religious establishment would turn against him and uh, drive him to the cross, where he where he died a sacrificial death. But that wasn't the end of the story. How that dead person rose again. He 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 walks out of his grave, and then he leaves death as a defeated enemy, torn to shreds. And that's 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 the story, isn't it? That's a story. So, why begin with a column and a half that no one's going to read? That's the question I'd like to ask. Like to ask Matthew, what was he thinking uh, in beginning in beginning this way? In fact, I, I mean, it's more of a problem than that in a sense, because um, someone decided out of the four gospel accounts that we have of Jesus, sort of four dimensions on this in- incredible event in history that happened. Out of those four, John's Gospel begins with, with the most uh, monumental sweep of history. You remember how John begins, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now that's going to get our attention uh, right from the start. Luke's Gospel gives you a paragraph about why what he's going to say is trustworthy. That, that's helpful, isn't it? Why we can trust what he said. He's carefully investigated uh, everything that he's written down and um, Mark begins with a a short headline about what's going to come up and then he gets straight into the action he hasn't got time even to wait for the birth story Uh, he's straight into the action of what happens with Jesus Christ immediately is one of his favourite favourite words no messing around and you'll often find if if Christians are recommending a gospel account for someone to read uh, we've got some at the back if you're interested take a bible if, if you promise you're going to read it When Christians are recommending one of the Gospels, they will normally recommend either Mark, Luke or John. I don't know whether you've noticed that. But somebody chose Matthew to begin the whole of the New Testament. Someone chose these words to begin this whole incredible account of how God brings all these promises to bear. And and, and he breaks into his own world in the person of Jesus Christ and proclaims this sort of um, salvation, this rescue plan, which is coming to fulfilment as Jesus dies. Well, presumably, if, if we do find Matthew 1, 1-17 unexciting, it's because we've missed something. I mean, I, I, I take it that um, if Matthew begins with this list of names, then you can be quite sure that this list of names was very important to him, And he intended it to be monumentally important for us as well. And so on a a busy Sunday afternoon, just a couple of weeks before Christmas, it's going to be worth our while, I think, looking at it again until we understand why Matthew should have begun his whole account of Jesus' life. Indeed, why someone should have chosen that the whole of the New Testament should begin with these words at the start of Matthew's Gospel. So if, if, we, if we were to go and find Matthew, we were to put a microphone up to his face and say, why start this way? I think he'd say there are three monumentally important things that he wants to convey. And we're gonna think about this briefly as we look at that part of the Bible. It'd be a great help to me if you could keep that open in front of you, it's just on the center spread of the service sheets. The first thing I think he'd say is this that old promises are coming true. That's what excites Matthew uh, about this list of names. Old promises are coming true. Have another look at that list of names and you'll see that it's it's not just a list of names, it's actually a family tree. I don't know whether you've ever investigated your family tree, we did a bit of work on ours. Some right old rogues, I'll tell you, who um, seem, seem to have given rise to, you know, some quite respectful members of society. But um, it's a family tree. And, and it covers a, almost the whole of the Old Testament. It's extraordinary, really, that The whole of the Old Testament, 2,000 years summed up in 16 verses. Um, so if you have a look down at verse 2, um, begins with Abraham. Abraham is the father of Isaac. Uh, father can, can just mean ancestor in, in, in the Hebrew. Sometimes it skips a, a couple of generations. That's the way that it works. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. That's from the book of Genesis, if you know it, the very first book of the Bible. And you can follow it all the way down to verse 16. Uh, verse 16, have a look down at that. And Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus who is called the Messiah. Now we're, into the, now we're into the Christmas story. That really is the whole of the Old Testament in summary. But very helpfully, just in case we were to find 2,000 years of history a little bit too much to, to take on board, uh, there are two names that get the spotlight. I don't know if you notice that, two particular names in 2,000 years that get all the attention. Uh, and in fact, they headline in verse 1. Can uh, you see that there? Right up at the top. This is the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. That means the rescuing king. It's the genealogy of Jesus the Messiah. Son of David, son of Abraham. They're the two names that get all, all, the, all the attention, really. And just in fact, you, just in case you forgot those names, I'm terrible at remembering names. I'm so sorry if I got your name wrong uh, already this afternoon. In case we forgot those names, they come again at the end, verse 17. You see, thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David. Matthew wants us to remember those two names in particular. Why? That's the question. Why pick out those two? And it's because of some old promises that were that were made to them, and very very significant. Promises As as Jesus arrives, Matthew's point is, these old promises are are, are coming true. There's been a lot of waiting, but finally, the things that were promised are being fulfilled. That's important, isn't it? So we heard about the first promise, uh, as Ennis read to us from Genesis 17. Uh, That promise to Abraham. Have a look back at that on page 2. Genesis 17 you see that? So let me give you a quick recap. Genesis 1 and 2, God, God made the world. Genesis 3, we've ruined the world. And then um, Cain and Abel, the flood, Babel, death, destruction. Um, but then God speaks into that situation with an astounding promise. Really a very one-sided, quite unexpected promise that, that, that God makes to someone who he chooses called Abraham, and in a whole world of curse, God promises blessing. And then He says in verse six that kings will come from this person, Abraham. He promises to to bless the whole the whole world through Abraham. And then He says, "Kings will come from you." See, kings will come who will bring blessing. If you notice, we took up the lights a little bit at that moment when we were reading Genesis seventeen, because uh, our eyes are open to what God's up to. And then while you've got that page open, have a look across the page to 2 Samuel chapter 7 verses 8 to 13. And, and this is about David, that's the second name which, which Matthew is very keen to highlight in this opening to his, uh, to his gospel. A uh, quick recap, you know, David has been uh, persecuted by Saul and then he defeats Goliath, do you remember that? And then he becomes king in Jerusalem. He's a man after God's own heart, that's how he's described and he, and he wants to build a temple, but God says no. instead God says he 's going to speak into that situation to bring about a, a breathtaking promise. Listen to Samuel seven i 'm um, not making this up. Have a look down at um, verse 12 of 2 Samuel 7. This is what God promises when your day's are over, David, and you rest with your ancestors in other words, when you're dead, I will raise up your offspring. That's singular, one person to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish His kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for My name, and I will establish the throne of His kingdom forever. One king, whose reign is never going to stop. And if you notice, that we, we took the lights up a little bit more at that point, because their eyes are a bit more open to uh, to what God's to what God's up to. And, and these promises, Matthew is saying, weren't just spoken into thin air, and they're not just thrown out there in the way that um, sometimes politicians will do in the hope that we'll forget that they ever made them. No, Matthew's saying, um, and this king actually came. This king descended from Abraham, and, and, and here's the proof, Matthew 1. This king actually came, and he, come, he came to bring blessing. Old promises are coming true. I, I, I don't know if you've read... Um, Lord of the Rings, I don't know if you've read uh, The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, uh, I don't know if you've read Sleeping Beauty, but all, all of the best stories talk about promises that come true, but they're just echoes of this real story that happens in history. Where promises have come true through a, a real person descended from real people, Jesus Christ. And, and, and Matthew's excited because he says that the, the blessing has come from this descendant of Abraham And this king has come from David. Here's his line of descendants, by the way. Matthew 1, 1 to 16, 17. And and he is going to reign forever. And his name, remember this name, is Jesus the Messiah, the rescuing king. The son of David, the son of Abraham. His name fits, by the way. uh, Because it means God rescues. Sometimes names don't fit. Do you know that the... um, the president of the Royal Horticultural Society, of which my dad was a member. The president of the Horticultural Society is called Keith Weed. That's not That doesn't really fit, does it, with the, with the role that he has, but Jesus, is, Jesus' name does fit. God rescues, because as Matthew's gonna tell us, he will save people from their sins. Can you see some of the implications for the Christmas story? That we're going to hear over the next few weeks. The point is this that it's not about what we need to do, it's about what God has already done. That's the good news is Christmas. You know, Christmas was never meant to be all about self improvement, about how to live a better life, about how to become a kinder and, and, and more generous person? Although every Christmas film will tell you that it's a it's a wonderful life. You know, you've got to become a better person, a kinder person, more generous. It's not it's not telling us, you know, to become a wise man. It's not telling us to f- follow our star, whatever that means, any more than it's telling us to be a shepherd in the middle of the night. It's not about what we need to do. It's about what God has done. And then it's enormously liberating in a season where we feel we have a thousand and one things to achieve. Yeah. Christmas is not about self-improvement on our part, but promise fulfillment on God's part. And, and that promise was to send a, a rescuer king who would, to, who, would, who would do what we most needed, which was to be reconciled with God. Christmas is an announcement of what has been done to save us. And that's why Matthew's so excited as he begins his Gospel account. Now well, Matthew wants us to know that old promises are being fulfilled. They came true. Follow down the family line and you'll find that that promise fulfiller, that rescuer king, really came in flesh and blood. And so real blessing is available from a genuinely eternal king. It all starts to make sense. That's the first thing Matthew would say. If we asked him why he started this way. But there's a second, there's a second thing too, which sort of follows on from the first. Uh, because that rescuer king has come total outsiders are welcomed in outsiders can become insiders because, because of this rescuer king that's our second point that's the second thing Matthew would say let me explain that So Matthew begins his Gospel with, uh, with a family tree and really in those days a family tree functioned a little bit like a CV. It was to show that, that you were, um, it, it was the way that you recommended yourself to the world, show that you were a good stock, uh, that you had what it would take. Uh, and so some people in, in the first century would slightly doctor their CV. Herod the Great for instance, there were people he, he left out of his CV, quite, left out of his genealogy quite deliberately. Uh, to show to try and sort of bolster his credentials as governor in Israel but when it comes to Jesus Matthew is totally the offset totally the offset because he includes the kind of people that other people would leave out and it's a sign that that he's going to welcome outsiders in so the rhythm of um, of, of verses three to 6 a is broken by the inclusion of four women. I don't know whether you noticed that as Innes was reading it. Have a look at verse three. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. And then you get the father of, the father of, the father of, sort of following down verse five. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. And there are outsiders uh, in, in terms of their gender. So in the first century, you, uh, you, you, would, you would put uh, the male line in your genealogy, the women would tend to get left out. But Matthew puts them in quite pointedly. They're outsiders in terms of their gender and, and three of them are outsiders in terms of their race. So uh, one Canaanite, one Moabite, one Hittite. And these, these are people who wouldn't be allowed into the tabernacle. They don't have access to God under the, under, the, uh, under the law of Moses, but Matthew includes them quite deliberately, quite deliberately. And, and three of them are outsiders because of what they've done. This is, this is quite shocking, okay? Because of what they've done. So Tamar, verse three, I don't know whether you know the story of Tamar. She tricked her father-in-law into sleeping with her, uh, which, to put it bluntly, is incest. Um, that happens back in Genesis. Rahab, uh, verse 5, she was a Canaanite prostitute. She was what nowadays we call a sex worker in a Canaanite city. And then do you notice the uh, the person referred to as uh, the person who had been Uriah's wife? Let me see that down in uh, verse 6. Someone who had been Uriah's wife. Let me... Let me tell you who Uriah was, uh, just in case you don't know. Uriah was one of King David's very best friends. And when, when David was, was on the run, he was in trouble, running away from Saul, and, and a group of people put their lives on the line for him. They went and found him out in the wilderness and at um, risk to their own lives, they said they were gonna defend him and look after him. And one of those people was Uriah. And, and yeah, when David uh, became king, as, as he did, took, ho- took on that position of power. He saw Uriah's, the same Uriah, he saw Uriah's wife Bathsheba having a bath and, um, uh, and he started an affair with her. And, and as, if that, as if that wasn't enough, uh, sleeping with your best friend's wife, um, he then had Uriah killed when he found that Bathsheba was pregnant. I mean, you wonder what he would have done if he hadn't been a man after God's own heart, didn't he? And the reason that Bathsheba is referred to as Uriah's wife here, is not to say anything against Bathsheba at all. It's a desperate reminder of of what David had done. And so you have outsiders in terms of gender and race, and morality, all of them recorded in in Jesus' family tree. Because the people he's come to rescue are the outsiders. He's come as a rescuing king. Jesus is owning these people. Can you see that? He is owning them. The people he's going to rescue are the outsiders through, incidentally, a a, a woman called Mary whose morality is going to be called into question in the the book of Matthew. And that's why the church has always been for people who know that by rights, God should have nothing whatever to do with them. Church has always been for people like that. Uh, Martin Luther, someone who was very significant uh, a few hundred years ago in church history, this is what he said, it's one of my favorite quotes. You'll see it up on the screen. May a merciful God preserve me from a Christian church in which everyone is a saint. I want to be and remain in the church and little flock of the faint-hearted, the feeble and the ailing, who feel and recognize the wretchedness of their sins, who sigh and cry to God incessantly for comfort and help, who believe in the forgiveness of sins that's the Christian church it is only for people who know that God by rights should have nothing whatever to do with them and so I I wonder I wonder whether this Christmas we've really understood the honour of being a Christian have we understood that by rights God should have nothing to do with us And yet he's treated us with great honour, whether we're a king or whether we're a sex worker. Because this rescuing king wants to welcome us to himself this Christmas, whatever we've done. If we're prepared to acknowledge that he should have nothing to do with us, that we're depending only on the forgiving, rescuing death of of Jesus Christ that he came to perform. Once we've understood that, you see, we want to welcome in other outsiders as well, won't we? That will be our natural reaction, I guess. Or maybe you're thinking, oh, this sounds very nice. Uh, It's nice at Christmas to think about these kind of things. It's a nice idea. But soon Christmas will be over. Uh, Soon we'll be back to real life. You know, the reality of January is going to come and hit us sideways. Don't get me on this whole sentimental thing. You know. says Matthew, as he starts his account of Jesus' life, This isn't just about two weeks in December. This is the purpose of the whole of human history. The whole of human history. History has found its purpose. That's our third and and final point. If we ask ask Matthew why um, start in, in in this sort of strange way, he would say because I want to show you the whole direction of human history. History has found its purpose. Um, I don't know whether you call yourself a historian. We've certainly got some people here who uh, are something of an expert in history. Um, no one will make that claim of me. Uh, one of my friends actually recently went back to my old school to become a history teacher. And uh, very strangely, he found in a, in a filing cabinet at the back of his classroom uh, the mark book from when I had been taught history in that very classroom. Uh, I've got a photocopy copy here, Mr. Kemp, Advent 1985. I'm uh, very, very young, in 1985, taught history from a very early age, as you can imagine. And um, it's, it's got my marks there for the Advent term, 1985. And I start quite strongly. Now, Hobson is in there between Harmsworth, Har- Harmsworth and Holden Crawford, I remember both of those two. And uh, I start quite strongly in the top five or six, with a B double plus, by the end of the term, strangely, I've got a C plus, which is worst in the class. Uh, I seemed to be the, the least improved of, uh, of my cohorts. No one would ever have me down as a historian. And I, I think, generally speaking, um, in our culture and in our time, people aren't terribly interested in history. I think they're very interested in the here and now, uh, very absorbed with themselves, very absorbed with the present, rather than... Uh, some people that might have lived in the past. Uh, I think we, uh, we, you know, we take a lot of selfies, uh, get involved in social media. It's all about the present. It's all about this. This. It's all about a moment, isn't it? Uh, that we're all enjoying together. But the way that Matthew tells history it says that it began somewhere, and it's going somewhere. History has a purpose. Now, Mr. Kemp never mentioned that to me. Uh, that there are really three big eras in history, according to Matthew, three big eras in history, from Abraham to David. He says, and from David to the exile, and from the exile to Jesus. All all, all of the other stuff that we that we learn in in history lessons is it's not wrong, but it's sort of footnotes. Footnotes. Abraham to David, God promises that He's going to bring blessing out of out of a terrible curse, and He does. And then, Abraham to David. Uh, and David to the exile. God pr- promises that he's gonna bring one king who would rescue outsiders into his kingdom, and he does. And then the exile through to Jesus, the nation of Israel completely collapses, and, it, and, and it's left as just a sort of collection of refugees um, hundreds of miles away from home. But the, pro- but the prophets keep on saying that God's promises haven't been forgotten. And one day a child's going to be born in Bethlehem and he'll be a ruler, it says, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. See, and, and, and he was. History's going down this pathway towards Jesus Christ Has a purpose, has a direction, and a meaning. History has found, its, has found its purpose. And so, who can blame Matthew for putting that purpose right at the front of his Gospel? This isn't a fairy story, he says. This really happened. This is real history. And so you and so you read through his gospel and you come to the end and you find out that, that this person, Jesus Christ, he, he was, who was born, it says, to rescue people from their sins, has all authority on heaven and earth given to him. That's how the Gospel of Matthew ends. All authority in heaven and earth given to him. And so he sends people out. To make disciples. Disciples who will belong to him. And so, in other words, every, every day, from that point onwards, Matthew's saying, every day that dawns is to be a day when disciples are called to Jesus. That, that's what history is all about. It's about God ruling over the world through his son, the rescuing king, so that disciples will be made for him that's the point and you see what that means as Advent as we finish it means we can we can free ourselves from getting too entangled in the here and now by getting crushed by the pressure of, 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 of taking responsibility for history onto ourselves we, we, we sort of feel like that a little bit as if the whole world sort of revolves around us because it, in the end that traps us traps us in all the things we have to do just to keep the show on the road. We can get so caught up with that. When we think the world revolves around us, we get trapped into this sort of deceptive perception of reality where we think that we're at the centre of everything. We think it all depends on us, you know, the career and the mortgage and the, and the kids and then, you know, Christmas, there's extra stuff loaded onto us. You know, the family and the food and the midnight mass, whatever it is we feel we have to do. And Matthew 1 contains such good news. It says that all that is important has been done by this rescuing king. All that is important. The blessing of forgiveness, the promise of eternal life in his kingdom. If you haven't seen that yet, I'd love you to... Um, sign up for a course called Hope Explored we're starting in the new year just three weeks it's all on Zoom Uh, if you want to find out some more about it we've got some blue postcards at the back just stick some details down on that stick it in the gold box and and we'll get back to you Hope Explored I can't recommend that highly enough I'll say a bit more about that a bit later on but for those of us who are already Christians then that's the liberation we need to know this week yeah? liberation, to realise that what is most important has been achieved. This isn't about what we need to do, it's about what's already been done. God has done it already. History has pointed the way to Jesus. Old promises have come true. Total outsiders have been welcomed in and it's an extraordinary honour, isn't it, to be treated like that when we had no way of finding our way back to God. And, and, And every day is another day when we invite ordinary people to realise that this King's rescue is available for them oh happy Advent I'm going to pray, let's pray Heavenly Father thank you so much uh, that we can see this purpose unfolding in history, we know that we're part of this big story uh, of your sending a a Rescuer King, long long promised, uh, now arrived and ready to welcome outsiders in like us. So I pray Father we would feel the honour of being treated in that way Uh, whatever we've done, whatever our history uh, whatever our status, uh, that you long to welcome us in and that this Christmas isn't about what you're demanding from us, it's what you're offering us in, in that person of Jesus Christ, who offered himself as a sacrifice and then um, broke out of the grave to show that he shredded death, that death no longer has to have any power over us at all. That eternity is open open before us, this forever King is giving us the opportunity of living with him in a way that will never end. Uh, we know, Father, that... Many of the best stories that we've ever enjoyed involve ancient promises that are um, fulfilled by a, 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 a rescuer. Um, but this one is real. It's just an echo of what actually happened in history. And all of history is pointing this way towards Jesus Christ. So I pray we'd recognise that. We recognise there's we no other way of getting back to you. And so this Advent will be a time of discovering what it is to be rescued by the Son that you sent. And we ask all these things in your name. Amen.